I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman. I am so delighted to be joined today by Lacey Crawford. She's the author of the novel Early Decision, and she lives in Southern California with her family. Her memoir is called Notes on a Silencing. Welcome, Lacey. It's so wonderful to see your face. I'm so happy to be in conversation with you. Thank you. Your, your book is haunting. And one of the, the, the things I keep thinking about is that you were 15 when you That's were right. sexually assaulted at boarding school. And so much of your book is about trying to find the words for it, to have the vocabulary and the point of view to understand it in terms of the, the literary way to say it and the legal way and all of these other ways. Tell me about that. That's right. And I, I mean, I think it began really the moment they began. So this, this, um, this evening where I was sober and 15 and a very good girl, pious girl, had gone to the boys' room after they called me on the payphone in my dorm, uh, only one of them called called and said that he needed my help and he sounded like he was crying and I knew he had a serious girlfriend and even if he hadn't I was definitely not the kind of girl that this guy would have noticed he was a very prominent athlete and from the moment I was pulled up by he put his hands under my arms and pulled me up into the window of his dorm room because his dorm was a little bit above the path where I was standing and I landed on a mattress that was under the window and his roommate was there and the lights were off and then I could see that they didn't have clothes on and I could see the stereo equalizer across the way. And, um, and they had this low music playing and they shushed me when I said, what's wrong? You know, um, because the teacher mm. would come in from next door and I would be busted in this boys dorm. And it felt to me at age 15, like that would have ruined my life. I didn't yeah. really understand how what was going to follow would actually reshape my life um, in a different way. But I didn't, 
I didn't have the words from that moment on to describe to myself uh, in any way what was happening. So the moment turned in a way violent. I want to be careful about that because yes, it was aggressive, but I was not wounded. I was not injured and there are plenty of survivors who are. I want to leave space for that. But um, from the moment they let me go, I remember looking down at my sneakers and I had blue jeans on and a pullover, like a Patagonia jacket or something. I was, you know, it was cold. It was New Hampshire in late October. And they hadn't taken my clothes off. Uh, and I thought, well, that nothing, nothing had that, right? Because I have my clothes on, except that what had just happened, which was the way that they had penetrated me, had destroyed something inside me. And there was almost like a, a logic puzzle that I couldn't make match up. And so, mm. no, I didn't have the term sexual assault. I didn't have the term, you know, forced penetration. I didn't have the term consent. I didn't have the term, you know, statutory. None of that was in my vocabulary. Um, so I, I, I'm not sure that I knew how to describe to myself the experience I was having. And because of that, it seemed not to matter, except that it was all that mattered. And subsequently, the way I was responded to, first by the physicians on campus and then by administrators on campus after I told my parents, they all seemed to reinforce this thought that what had happened to me didn't really matter. It wasn't right. really that big a deal. I mean, you know, stuff happens and we're adolescents and, you know, we're very sorry. And I don't even think I said that actually. But anyway, mm. um, there was so much burying of it and so much undermining of the force of it. And I was so assured of the force of it inside my own self. And that made me feel crazy. It made me feel crazy. Of course. Yeah. So, so, for me, trying to find a way to write about it uh, was a way, first and foremost, to be able to hold it in my hands and look at this thing. And thereafter, could I find the words that would allow other people to understand what it feels like for so many of us? Yeah. And that there, I mean, we say this all the time now, but I don't think it was a concept that we really understood in the early 90s that like... There is no perfect victim right. and there are many, many, many reasons um, not to report this kind of thing. Um, I, and, and the school asked at, at some point, why did you not come forward earlier? And you were still maligned for, for not coming forward. <laughs> like, I know. I mean, yes, remarkably. I, the amazing thing is that I was never wrong. So, and I think this is something survivors, if, if their experience is anything like mine, and, and they needn't be girls, and they needn't even be survivors right. of sexual assault, although I do think the added sort of residue of shame around sexual assault makes it even more complicated in some ways, although I understand that for some of the, the men I've been hearing from, physical assault carries a similar mm. shame because of the, the sense of having been dominated in some way, right? So, I mean, I, I think I, these boys made a bet that they could do this to me, this younger girl, this studious girl, nerdy girl, and get away with it. And they were right. Mm -hmm. And I made a kind of bet <laughs> that I didn't have any good options, that if I told someone, everything would get worse. And I was right. You know, that's exactly what happened. And, and I would like to think that things have changed now. But one of the things that's so remarkable to me about sexual assault in particular is that 
the perpetrators are able to foist their shame and their aggression into the victim. And the victim then is left holding this. And she can either stay quiet and carry it by herself and hope that's the end of things. And sometimes, as far as the external world is concerned, it is. Right. Or she says, hell no, and she tells someone. And what follows is police investigations if she's lucky and they interview everyone who's ever known her and she goes and gets a medical exam and it's invasive, invasive, invasive. And all of this is because she told. Right. Do you see there's that beat between the assault and the telling that adds so much pain to the telling. And so it was even more important for me that the words be the right ones and that they be my own. And it's it seemed like the shame of course was built in as you said, you were concerned about being found in a, a boy's room late at night when you shouldn't have been there. Oh, I and, mean, of course, yeah. Yeah, looking back from this distance, it seems like, yeah, of like <laughs> we know what the bigger issue is, but try getting that through your 15-year-old brain. Well, exactly. And, that's your, and when you're 15, your world is quite small. Right. It's it's the world of your peers. And that's the thing that matters most. And then, of course, beyond that are your parents, if you're lucky to have two parents who are paying attention to you. And beyond that are the ambitions that you have, you know, for your future, which are sort of vaguely held, I think, at that point. But um, certainly I would have been immediately suspended. I would have been shipped home on a flight to O'Hare, you know, for three days. It would have gone on my permanent record. And I thought, you know, no, I'm I haven't messed up yet and I'm not going to let you be the reason I do. Right. So there is going to be a loss and, and the victim is then in the position of having to decide what shape that loss takes. Hmm. And you, you really do get into the, um, the environment in which you were taught to learn. Um, and it, it, it's, tell me about some, you call them poly words. That's the vocabulary of, yeah. yeah of yeah. your classmates and like what kinds of people you were surrounded by. So this is, yes. So St. Paul's is, what is it? 160 years old or something. And it was, it's in the New Hampshire woods outside of Concord and was founded by and for wealthy waspy white boys um, who didn't want to have to go to school with anyone who wasn't like them. And certainly the student body has been expanded since then, but I'm not sure that that core objective has shifted at all. So I grew up with plenty of privilege and certainly a waspy white girl. I did not grow up uh, with a kind of New England heritage or family experience um, or island homes or all of these things that right. I, I came to realize were really the communities that formed in many ways the kind of bedrock of a lot of these American institutions. And that's changing now, but that's certainly the way it was at the beginning of the 20th century. Um, and indeed, you know, late 19th century, which is when St. Paul's was really beginning to thrive. So um, my experience of going there was that I was hopelessly naive and unsophisticated and um, and I, I was overwhelmed by this notion of a legacy institution where the students who are there carry a kind of cachet because of their relationship to students who have come before, right? So it's not like everybody is new every year and we're going to figure this out. It's right. some people already belong there. And the rest of you better pretend you do, which means if anything goes wrong, you aren't going to say anything about it, you know? I mean, I think it adds a kind of... Um, 
a kind of layer of fear to that shame or, or imagined shame that would follow the admission of something like this. So obviously everybody had their own experience of it, but also St. Paul's is this very satisfied, um, very wealthy place. Their endowment now is, you know, $700 million or something. I mean, it's like a small college and they're 500 adolescents. And so you come to believe that uh, if you get this right, you know, um, if you don't mess this up, then really good things will happen for you, that you might actually be launched in a way that, that feels incredibly seductive when you're 15 or 16. Yeah, it's, there's this idea that education at the right place would be the great equalizer. And then it's only in retrospect, you look back and see that there was a hierarchy, even in the most privileged of the privileged. Well, exactly. I, for sure. And I think also the, the notion of the great equalizer, I, I mean, I have a very cynical approach to that mm-hmm. now because I think... I don't blame you. <laughs> well, nobody, I don't think anybody thought that we were emerging from our senior spring more educated than other students, you know, in high schools around the country. I mean, certainly we had access to extraordinary teachers and, and resources, but come on, you know, I, I could name for you 30 public high schools where kids would have beaten the pants off of us and, you know, a number of, so this has nothing to do with the quality of the education in and of itself. It's rather that by virtue of having gone there, you are a part of a network and a part of a fantasy, effectively, a self-serving, self-replicating fantasy that means that I have photographs of Bob Mueller as a student with his arms around John Kerry because one of them was the other one's old boy. That's literally the term. They still use it, right? So the senior who takes the younger guy under his arm and you see these people out in the world and you think, well, I mean, sometimes I laugh with my husband because like the worst nightmare for any high school student is that high school never ends, right? Is that you're going to graduate into the world and these people are still going to lord things over you. But when you go to a place like St. Paul's, that's kind of true. It's kind of true. They run institutions. they, They are in the public eye. Maris, when my book was on submission, it leaked to St. Paul's School. You t- I mean, you, you talk about that in the book, too, a lot, that there yeah. are, it's like there are networks everywhere. Everywhere. Yeah. It, and, and I recently, I spoke to the LA Times about this because I was told by a, a previous rector, actually, um, who called me, that, uh, that they had all had the book in PDF, you know, ages ago. And, and the school's communications director confirmed to the LA Times that someone asked her own literary agent for a copy of it and yes, distributed it to the school. And here's what's amazing to me is did that person who is presumably a writer contact me? You know, have I heard from that person? No, but it gets spread, you know, to the school. So the institutions protect themselves and, um, and they do it even beyond the bounds of the grounds, even beyond the bounds of those four years. And, and it's not limited to boarding schools. I think it's just, this is like a little Petri dish version right. of how this is done. Right. You know, it's particularly yucky, uh, but, it's, but it's by no means, you know, a unique example. And it was years later that you found out that there were stories being told about you that you had absolutely no input in no no way to manage in any way that's exactly right yeah i mean it it was um i'm not sure how much of the particulars of the story it's worth getting into okay um i mean they've been fairly widely reported and um but it is the case that 
one of the ways, one of the tools that the administration used to um, silence me effectively to make sure that I, that my problem went away, the, the little problem of my statutory assault, you know, was magicked away, was that they had access to my medical records. The administration had access to my medical records and they shared information from those files with my classmates, which is, aside from being an astonishing ethical breach, it makes you feel that you live in a world in which there is truly nowhere for you to go, right? I mean, that, that is a kind of annihilating entitlement over the life of a young woman. And I knew that had been done to me because when I returned to campus for my senior year after I had come forward about the assault, there was clinical evidence introduced into a police investigation. Um, I was told I was not welcome to return to campus unless I did not testify uh, against the boys, which meant effectively not allowing the state to move forward with charges against them. Um, when I returned to campus, uh, many people on campus already knew about the medical repercussions mm -hmm. of this assault. And I had only myself found out from my doctor over the summer. And God knows, you know, I didn't put it in a like, you know, MailChimp, you know, message, right? <laughs> yeah. Like it was like, this was very private to me. So um, the school had access to my medical records before I did, and they shared them with my classmates such that to the extent to which that very small world bled into the slightly less small world of certain private colleges and universities and other rather suffocating institutions, it followed me. It followed me. Yeah, and, and the, the level of entitlement that is on, on display here is like, I mean, one of the points you make is that there are no locks on the doors. There were no locks on the doors. I am told that has since changed. There's, okay. a new There's a new rector who's a woman. She's been in place for two years. And she said the very first thing she did was put like those proximity locks, you know, on the outside of every door that, you know, universities have had for how long now, you know, just to try to keep people marginally safe. Yeah, no, we had no locks on our doors. So you weren't allowed to because of a fire hazard, I guess, the firefighters needed to be able to get into you, um, which meant a lot of other people to get into you too. But imagine right. that you have 250 teenage girls sleeping in these gothic pile dorms in the middle of New Hampshire woods with no locks. It's boggling. Boggling. Yeah. Tell me about when you actually put this story together, what it was like for you to, one, go back to the moment and reconsider your school career but also how, what was it like for the people who were in your life at the time or are now? Yeah, <laughs> you might have to ask them, some of those people. Okay. Um, no, no, I, I'm happy to speak for that. I mean, I'm laughing because I think it, it, it cost us, it did. Mm -hmm. um, I, so I would never have written about this at this point in my life, you know, I'm 45 now, I have three kids, I've been married for a while, I'm, everything's good. Here I am and I'm settled and I am not about to go turning over rocks and reintroducing this into my life. But in 2017, the state of New Hampshire opened a, a formal investigation into the school and I participated in that very privately. My husband and I talked about it. I got in touch with the attorney general's office by myself, was referred to the Concord police who opened a new case file. They also had my old case from 1991 to hand. 
Uh, and even that was remarkable to me that that existed, that I hadn't made it all up. I mean, I, I was so young and, and, and you know, the, the kind of murk and the swamp of trauma means that when you move into a brighter space, you're like, Ugh, you know, just, yeah, it's almost like getting over the stomach flu. Like you, you never remember how bad the night was on the bathroom floor. You know, mm. you just know that you'll never, ever, ever drink that stuff again. Right. So <laughs> like, that's sort of how it felt. And I, um, I wouldn't even then have written about it, except that uh, once I started participating in the investigation, the school somehow found out and their lawyers got in touch with me and I, I, you know, they asked me to contact them and I was like, LOL, no, you know, and forwarded <laughs> that email to the police and the police drove to campus and got my student file. And I just want to pause for a moment and reflect on the fact that my student file, which was that August 25 years old, just happened to be available. Either to the rector on his desk, right? So now obviously he doesn't have many thousands of files sitting there, you know, to hand, but he had mine and he gave it to the police and the police, you know, photographed every page and then called me and said, we have a smoking gun here because what they had found was basically the plan for how the school was going to silence me. And I said, that's what I told you. That's everything I told you. And it was, it was so validating. It was almost exciting. I mean, I, I don't want to use the word triumph because it's, there is no right. triumph in this, but I was like, God damn, I wasn't wrong. You know, mm -hmm. I, I, there's something about for I think for being a girl, um, I, I certainly anyone who is marginalized, my experiences as a white girl, my experience was that I was not allowed to claim the authenticity of my own experience. Right. Right. I was not allowed to be a reliable witness to my own experience. Whatever I said was possibly not the way it really was. Right. So, so to have told the police this, and then they said, yeah, we found that. And I was like, yeah, that's exactly what I told. That's what happened. And I wasn't wrong. And then I got a hold of my medical records and I saw that the school had known that I had contracted a disease from one or both of these boys and kept that information from me and from my parents and from my doctors at home. And I, I presented all of this and Concord PD said, we've got it. And we're going to the attorney general's office. And then for whatever reason, uh, and I've been offered five pages of impenetrable legalese that says, basically nothing um, and I'm a pretty good reader I don't have a law degree but right um, they were severed from my case Concord police could not go forward and the New Hampshire Attorney General would not include my case at all in his investigation into the school and that was it it was magicked away again and I thought you did this once and you're not going to do it again and I've got the receipts you know I'm sorry yes. to use the term but I've got them so I started writing and once I was able to write the assault, which is how I open the book. I write it cleanly and in third person. Um, I needed to get that out of the way because to me, the assault is the least interesting part of the mm. story. It is, of course, what begins the story, but uh, it happens so often. Right. Um, and there's nothing remarkable about it. And it's very important to me that I say that there is nothing remarkable about that. I There's nothing about that story uh, that should inspire you know, listening beyond the fact that it happens to so many of us. So um, once I got that down, I thought, God, you know, I think I can write this. And I, I wrote very, very quickly uh, in the space of time I had between dropping off my youngest at preschool and picking up my youngest at preschool, mm. which required a kind of toggling back and forth between mommy loves you, mommy will see you after lunch, to... Oh you know, what I was writing about and then coming back out. And then my husband would take the boys on weekends. But I was, you know, I mean, it, it wreaks hell on a marriage, I'll tell you for sure. You know, to go back to this, I, I found myself um, not wanting to be touched and not only by my husband, mm. but just needing to not 
even when my little boys, you know, mommy, we love you. Um, feeling almost like I was back in glass and I needed to stay in that glass for a little while. When I wrote the actual assault scene, not the outline of it that I opened with, but the, the right. moment in story, when I narrate the assault scene, I did throw up. Um, oh, Lacey, I'm sorry. No, thank you. But I... <laughs> yeah, it's it's... The body remembers it's The terrible. body remembers. It's true. You know, a funny thing happened. I was invited to record my audiobook. So it was three whole days, right, of sitting oh, in, in front of this studio microphone that picks up, you know, like you blink too hard and here's your <laughs> yes. eyelashes, right? And and somehow, like nothing, I was so afraid that I would like burp or like something gross would happen <laughs> and they would catch it on the microphone, and be, you know, because there's like a director and a producer silence and I read everything there were so few you know pickups and we didn't have to go back all that much and then I got to the assault scene and my stomach started like gurgling this may be like too much for you, but and they and, and so the and so the sound engineer was like sorry Lacey can we can we just stop can we just go back to he pressed me down sorry can we, oh, and I was no. like yeah no fuck so we I mean it was funny because it sure. you know but it took like an hour to get through those two pages and then after I was done with that like silence from the whole body for the rest of the time I was and there was no explanation for it you know so I, I mean my body keeps the score in weird gurgly ways I guess but like <laughs> you know it's there it's there yeah and it, it's it's a good reminder that even though this story is not entirely unique that so many of us have have felt this way that that there is a visceral consequence right decades later literally in the viscera i mean you use the word visceral like it's it, it is literally it lives in the belly and i i think i had not figured out how to write in that way before um i took so many creative writing classes in college i didn't do an mfa um but i have read so ferociously and tried so hard to be a writer, to write something. Um, and I sometimes think that what I hadn't quite found my way to is writing those stories. And I don't mean to suggest we all need to sit down and write trauma. In fact, I'm very resistant to that. And I also hate how that gets gendered in mm -hmm. truth. That drives sure. me nuts. Um, but I, I think there is a way that one writes, I don't want to say from the body because that's not, quite how I think, but there is an attachment to the things that move us viscerally that is very different from the things that interest us. Oh, yeah. And, and, and yeah, you do a, gr a lovely job in the book talking about who you were reading and, yeah. um, and how escapism was helpful. And, but then it's like the thing I think about is you also mentioned in the book, um, Alice Seabald's Lucky. Um, and I think that was the first time I had ever read about rape. In any I mean, for, for all of us, right? For all other of than, us, right? Other than being like vaguely aware that it might happen because of police shows or whatever. Yeah. Right? I think yeah, that was the, think the first true. victim account that I had ever seen. That's right. And you, as you say, it derives its title from people telling her, well, you're not dead. You're lucky. Exactly. And as I, as I wrote, I, when I first read her book, I envied her. This is so 
complicated and is not a pretty part of my heart, but I envied her because what happened to her was so grotesque and it was a stranger and mm-hmm. she was a good girl and, and, and had, you know, she's like wearing a turtleneck. I mean, she was basically padlocked, you know, and the guy took her into a, into a storm pipe and, and almost killed her. And, and I thought, you know, and no one can tell you otherwise that you didn't want this. You know, if you have bruises and scrapes and you're cut and they photograph that, then everybody knows that it wasn't your fault. But if you don't have those things, the only thing you have to prove it wasn't your fault is your voice. And if nobody is willing to listen to that, if we're, if we have a criminal justice system that's like, I'm sorry, that's not enough, then I'm not really sure what recourse there is. And I was lucky in my own way in that I was 15 and they were 18. So it was a statutory assault and consent was irrelevant. And as it turned out, I did actually have a clinical evidence of the assault yes. in a way that uh, made it apparent that it was unlikely to have been consensual. But I don't know, had, had I not read Lucky when it, you know, when it come out 92 or something, it was very right. Or nine, yeah, nine, 96. I, it, it worked its way into me because of her voice right? Because here was a woman who went through this and lived through it. And that was the thing that I needed to hear. It was actually not the particulars of what happened to her, right? It was that she was another human being who was up ahead of me with her torch, you know, and Mm. and that was the thing. I love that. Um, So, of, of course, towards the end of the book, you happen to mention almost as an aside that Brett Kavanaugh's hearings were, um, I, I couldn't read this without thinking of those hearings just completely top of mind all the time. All the time. That's right. I mean, you're probably going to cut this, but I'm just going to tell you this story anyway. So Brett Kavanaugh was confirmed, I think it was like a Friday or something. It was October of 2018. And I went out for a run with my dog two days later. And I saw a white man in a black Tesla taking down signs for the Democratic congressional candidate in our district. He was pulling them out of the lawn and putting them in his trunk. And I was so mad about Brett Kavanaugh that I went up to him with my phone on and I said, hey, why are you doing that? And he said, this is private property. And I wasn't. And I said, well, can I take them? and put them up elsewhere. And he said, no, no, these belong to me. And then he turned his phone on and said, what's your name, girly? Are you a Democrat? Two can play at this game. And he said, are you, do you live in the neighborhood? I'll follow you home. And I was like, all right, pal. So I may have a 50 pound shepherd leash to my waist. So I turn around, I go back across the street, wave my hand, like the whatever thing that my mother-in-law does, you know, and I keep going down (laughs) the street. And I got home a mile later and he was there. Oh gosh. He was there. And it was like, you know, anyway, so Brett Kavanaugh, is not just Brett Kavanaugh. Of course you know? not. E- right? no. every, every one of us knows a Brett Kavanaugh or three or eight from high school and college. The men who thought it was funny mm-hmm. or they, cl- they cloaked what is to me a very obvious misogyny in something like humor, a little touch of exhibitionism that's supposed to be about them but isn't is actually quite threatening to the women in the room. And I imagine to some of the other men too who don't, wish to expose themselves in that way. And it was so clear to me that his response to being asked these questions, that he did not brook 
any possibility that he had in any way even been impolite. He could not even say, obviously, I don't believe I did these things, but I am so sorry if I hurt the women I grew up with. Like, he couldn't even do that. And, and, and that, for me, is a tell. There's no ambiguity in his, in his sense of himself. If there's no ambivalence or uncertainty, then I'm sorry, you're lying. Yeah. And we know it. And we know it. And we, yeah. And we all know it and felt it. Well, viscerally again. Viscer, exactly. Exactly. And so the, so I was informed that the state of New Hampshire was burying my case. That's my term burying. They use other terms like (laughs) abiding by legal procedures or something. But anyway, at the end of the day, whose story gets told, not mine. Um, I was told that that was happening just a matter of weeks really before, um, Kavanaugh was confirmed. And so watching it, it felt, I mean, talk about confirmation, right? I mean, it was like, this is how it is still, even now, um, worse in some ways. So, I mean, I, the Anita Hill hearings had been, I think the year before, um, Mm. when I was at St. Paul's and I, I remember hearing about them and vaguely understanding, but not in any way having the context to appreciate what she was trying to do you know, for my generation, for our generation, yes. right? Um, and she did. And if I ever meet her, I think I will lie down prostrate at her feet. Like, yeah. I, you know, I, the, the, the force, the force of these women. And they, they were heroic and were treated like... And yet, that's right. And yet. Um, Lacey, thank you so much. This was such a tough conversation, but you make it so easy. And um, this was great. Um, Before we go, um, will you recommend a few books? I would love to. They are not assault books. They um, They are, and they're very different books from each other and certainly different from mine. The first is a novel that was out a couple of years ago with Putnam. It's called The Wanderers and it's by Meg Howry. Oh, yeah. who's a, a Los Angeles based writer who um, uh, she was a professional dancer for, she went to Juilliard uh, out of Indiana. She left home in Indiana, went to Juilliard. And um, when she was finished dancing, decided she wanted to write. Uh, and she somehow taught herself <laughs> to write this exquisite fiction. And the Wanderers is a story of three astronauts who are training to go to Mars. So they're effectively locked in kind of a giant tin can for 18 months. This is not science fiction. This is actually happening right now. There's one of these tin cans somewhere Mm -hmm. in the Arizona desert, right? There's another one in Siberia. They're trying to figure out what it does to the human body and the human soul to be and the mind to be in these, you know, cans. So she puts a Japanese man and a Russian man and an American woman in this, you know, tin can for 18 months. And then you get to see the people they've left behind, you know, on the ground, some of whom are um, kind of in the control room and sort of see them and some of whom only get to glimpse them and some of them feel utterly neglected. And it is the most beautiful story about connection and not being able to connect with each other. And so right now, when we can't be with each other, it is so beautiful. I mean, it was always beautiful, but especially right now, I think, because we are like all of us training to go to Mars. (laughs) Yes. and the second is a is a novella. It's called Mothering Sunday by Graham Swift. Did you ever read it? No, I so never it's, have. It's it's sh- it's got to be like 119 pages or something. I don't know, but it's uh, Graham Swift. Obviously, is a British writer, and um, and this is a, a little book that came out also a couple of years ago, and it is about. Um, a housemaid, effectively, Mothering Sunday is Mother's Day in the UK. And it's a housemaid who has Mothering Sunday off to go see her mother. But she's also having an affair with the son of the house. 
And the son of the house is the last of the men because it's the war. And so all the men are gone and they're, they're not coming home. The boys are not coming home. And she goes on, you find out, to become a writer. And so what she's doing is she's telling you the story of this last time she was with this man on Mothering Sunday in this manner. And you feel the world changing around them, but you also mm. see uh, the genesis of the young woman becoming a writer and there's a scene where she descends the staircase and turns into a novelist before your eyes and it mm. is, I think it's perfect I think it's actually word for word a perfect book um and uh so that's my second well I'm adding that to my list right now thank yeah. you so much Lacey thank you Maris thank you thank you for listening to the Maris review and check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today and please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts